right. Uh, we are uh, in Genesis chapter 43, and last week we looked at the first uh, 15 verses or so, and uh, we will pick up from there and, and go down today, hopefully through about verse 25 or so. <laughs> Uh, but uh, we are a little bit shorter on time this morning. So, uh, quickly, what do you remember from last week we talked about? That kind of prime the pump and get us thinking again here. We're running short on food and need to go back down to Egypt again and basically something we're not going. Okay, okay. They're running short on food and... And it was time to go back, but uh, the brothers just really weren't interested in uh, in going back and jeopardizing their lives needlessly. <laughs> I don't know what their hang-up was. <laughs> but uh, So they said, we're not going unless uh, you let us comply with, uh, uh, with the demands of that guy down there in Egypt. What else? Find a few people finally kind of beginning to take responsibility in reality. Okay. It's amazing sometimes how God just puts us in circumstances where eventually we have to do the right thing. <laughs> and uh, so eventually they kind of get to that point. And, and, uh, and one person in particular in our story last week stood out in that regard. And who was that? Judah. Judah. Yeah, we begin to really see a change in Judah. Uh, we actually began to see that change back in chapter 38 in that encounter with or that uh, uh, situation with Tamar. Uh, but uh, but now he, he really is beginning to step up to the plate. He's really beginning to take responsible responsibility and and uh, to really act really I think really valiantly in this situation. And so what does what uh, uh, what does Judah do uh, that really is so outstanding here? Okay, he's he's not going to shirk it off on somebody else. He's not going to push it off. He's not going to let it be. He's not going to leave it up to one of his other brothers to do it. He's not going to pass off the cost of of failure on his sons like Reuben was uh, suggesting that he would do. Uh, but he he takes responsibility himself. And what is the effect of uh, what is the effect on Jacob as he sees finally one of his sons beginning to do the right thing? Yeah, isn't that amazing? It's just Jacob is so filled with fear and he's so desperate and but just. The encouragement of seeing one of his sons begin to change and be transformed and and step up to the plate, so to speak, uh, seems to be the way that the way the story unfolds seems to be the catalyst that really begins to trigger even a change in Jacob as well. And so Jacob, uh, he, he's he's not there yet. He's not reached the high point. He's going to reach a really high point before we get done with Genesis. 
And he's not there yet, but he but we begin to see the beginnings of change. And he actually says at this point, you know, he begins he begins to talk in terms of God again. He begins to think in terms of 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 God working and God blessing and God doing things. And uh, and so he he then surrenders to what seems in some ways to be inevitable, but he doesn't do it with this fatalistic uh, frame of mind that he seems to have had earlier. But but rather he does it with this sense of okay, God's in control, and if I'm bereaved, I'm bereaved. But but I'm going to I'm going to trust God in this. Okay. What else? Okay, and what what do, what do you make of that? You're asking me. <laughs> Does anybody else have any thought? I'm assuming it's because of the change of heart, maybe. Yeah, I think that's the suggestion. That's the suggestion I get in. It's not real clear. Uh, it's not real clear there, but but that's the suggestion I draw from it is is he, he's continued to be called Jacob because he's still living like Jacob. <laughs> but at this point, this it's like the signal. It's like a little flag to us. It says, okay, you watch Jacob now because he's Israel. Okay, And so it's like a little signal to us to say, uh, this guy's changing and we're going to call him Israel now. So, what else? Well, I wasn't here, but did you guys talk about the, um, <clears throat> the apparent insignificance of uh, Reuben's sons, not from Reuben's perspective, but from Jacob. You know, he offered his sons as collateral, in effect. And apparently, you know, when I first read it, I thought, well, Jacob, you know, that's nothing. You know, so why you know, you're willing to give up your own sons? So, did you guys talk about that? Well, yeah, I didn't see it in that frame. I didn't see it from that perspective. Yeah, uh, we did talk about that. That uh, that it was such an it was such an absurd offer and such an evil offer that he just doesn't even give it the light of day. That is, it doesn't even address the problem. It doesn't, you know, what is Jacob, what will Jacob gain if he loses Benjamin and then also loses two of his grandsons? So I, I didn't. I didn't see it as it as him being indifferent to the offer of the sons. I see it as it was just so preposterous and such a useless offer. It didn't even merit an answer, <laughs> and so he just ignores it. That's how I saw it. I was thinking he it was such an offer that that puts a very very significant amount of weight on the performance by uh, Reuben. Reuben. Yes. Now, yes. That. That maybe Jacob would take it seriously, but he was. Yeah. You know, yeah. Well, I think that's how Reuben intended it. That's how Reuben intended it, but it was a very foolish, obviously a very foolish officer, offer, and, and and did nothing to assuage his father's concerns. Yeah. Which which brings up another thing that we talked about last week is the contrast between Judah and Reuben. And Judah really represents for us, I think, moving forward from now in the, in the narrative, really represents for us a man functioning in the spirit. It represents for us what it means to walk in the spirit. And Reuben really is an example of a man who's operating in the flesh. And, and so Reuben's, 
Reuben is a, is is a is an example of a failure of moral leadership. He tries to lead. He tries to get the brothers to do the right thing, but but he just doesn't have the character that it takes to influence his brothers and and to have any effect. And in that sense, in that sense, he's he's really Reuben's really a failure. And, uh, and, of course, he's not totally a failure. He does, in one sense, manage to save Joseph's life uh, by his pleading with his brothers. But, but overall, in the general thrust of the story, uh, Reuben just kind of falls short. And he never really manages to accomplish what he seeks to accomplish. And that's really a testimony of what it's like to live in the flesh. When we live in the flesh, we never really do succeed. We may look like we succeed temporarily. It may appear that we're being successful. But in the real final analysis, we're a failure. And we're a failure because we've walked in the flesh. And Judah will succeed where Reuben has failed. And Judah will succeed because he offers himself in the place of Benjamin. He takes, he takes the place of Christ, if you will. He, he, he is for us. Judah is for us a type of Christ in that he offers himself and he says, I will be surety. I will stand in the place of Benjamin. And, and that is what ultimately prevails and that's what's ultimately successful. Well, let's go on uh, in uh, chapter 43 then. Pick up the story in verse 16 and we'll go down through about verse 25. And it's just uh, the continuing unfolding of the story. And we're really coming to a climax. And we won't quite reach the climax in the verses that we're looking at today. But we're pressing right, right uh, up uh, against that climax. And these verses lead us to that point. And, uh, and as, I, as I read these verses this week and meditated on them, and I, uh, when I first started looking at them, I was thinking, okay, you know, what is there in this? What does God want to say to us in these verses? Uh, and sometimes it just surprises me. When I first set out and I look at a passage and I think, at first glance, I think, well, you know, there's just not a lot there. And then as I spend more time and I look at it, sometimes I'm just blown away. And uh, this passage has some, some really neat hidden treasures in it to me. And by the time I was done with most of my study last night, and uh, I got in the car to come home, and I was just going, God, you're so awesome. Well, I, I hope I haven't built expectations up beyond what I can live up to here this, this morning. But I just want you to know I was really blessed by these verses. And, uh, and I hope you'll see why as we go forward. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them. Okay, so they've come down to Egypt and... And apparently here in verse 16, it's a, it's a scenario where, where Joseph can see the brothers, uh, but they're not yet having direct interaction. He just sees them in the crowd or whatever. He sees they've come back. And it says, when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to his house steward, bring the men into the house, slay an animal and make ready for the men are to dine with me at noon. So the man did as Joseph said and brought the men into Joseph's house. Now the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, 
It is because of the money that was returned in our sacks the first time that we are being brought in that he may seek occasion against us and fall on us and take us for slaves and our donkeys with our donkeys. So they came near to Joseph's house steward and spoke to him at the entrance of the house and said, O my Lord, we indeed came down the first time to buy food. And it came about when we came to the lodging place that we opened our sacks and behold, each man's money was in the mouth of his sack, our money in full. So we have brought it back in our hand. We have also brought down other money in our hand to buy food. We do not know who put the money in our sacks. He said, Shalom. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. Then the man brought the men into Joseph's house and gave them water and they washed their feet and he gave their donkeys fodder. So they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon for they had heard that they were to eat a meal there. Well, just kind of Going over the story first, just kind of let's just kind of review the story, and then I want to go back and I want to look at at uh, two or three different aspects of it that I think, uh, at least to me, are quite meaningful. Uh, so the brothers come; uh, they come in fear, they come in trepidation. They've complied; they've brought Benjamin with them. Judas, uh, Judas' life is on the line now. He's offered himself as surety for Benjamin. And so he probably even more than his, his other brothers are nervous about this whole thing. Benjamin's kind of just tagging along. He's never been here before. He doesn't know anything about what's going on. He knows even less than his brothers know. So he doesn't know that this great, that great Zaphonath Paneah is, is actually Joseph. He doesn't know that, but he doesn't know that he's going to Egypt with brothers who have sold another brother into slavery. He has no awareness of any of that. But they come and they come to Egypt and Joseph is there and he sees them out there and he sees that Benjamin is with them now. Now, I don't know how he identified Benjamin. Remember, he hasn't seen Benjamin in 22 Years it's been. We will see later in the narrative that by this point, two years of famine have already passed. So we are 22 years since he was sold into slavery. 22 years since he's seen his brother Benjamin, who was just a little squirt, little <coughs> crumb cruncher or whatever at the time, and uh, and so now he's a grown man, obviously. And so I don't know how when he looks out there and he sees the men out there that he knows that that's Benjamin, but. You know, maybe he just counted heads and just, you know, figured it had to be Ben. Or maybe he looked out there and he saw somebody that looked like his mother. I don't know how he knew it was Benjamin. But he looks out there and he sees him and he says, Benjamin is with him. And then he begins to put into action his plan. And and it, it's pretty it's a pretty safe assumption, I think, for us to make at this point that every step in this plan from this point forward is a carefully measured, carefully thought through step, right? When the brothers first appeared, it was, while he may have thought it could happen, it was in some respects a surprise. You know, 
uh, I think Mike pointed out to us that he, he might have anticipated that they could have shown up. And, and so he might have expected that they would show up, given that he knew people were coming from all over the world. <clears throat> but when they did show up, he, he had a plan and he, he put that plan in action. And then three days later, he changed the plan. So it seems like the first time they came, he's kind of he's kind of flying by the seat of his pants, so to speak. He's doing a pretty good job of it, better than I do when I do that. But 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 he but he is making plan and then he changes. But now at this point, he's had a long time to think, what am I going to do when they come back? <laughs> what am I going to do when they come back? I think he was probably pretty sure they would come back. They really had no choice. OK, <clears throat> so so he. So at this point, everything that Joseph does we have to assume is very carefully calculated, very carefully thought through, get very carefully planned out. I don't know that he planned on the emotional reaction that we'll see he has on several occasions, uh, but, but the steps that he takes are carefully thought through. And so he sees Benjamin and he sees his brothers and he talks to us. He, he, he speaks to his house steward and he says to his house steward, uh, you take the guys and you take them to the house and you slay an animal and you prepare a meal because I'm going to come home at lunch and we're going to have a great feast together. Okay? And it does turn out to be a pretty big meal. <clears throat> and uh, so they do that. And he brings, the brothers, uh, he brings the brothers to the house. And when the brothers find out they're coming to Joseph's house, they're just really pretty excited about this, right? They're not. I mean, they're getting to go eat with Zaphonath and Ale. What's wrong with that? They may be lunch. Yeah, they may be lunch, yeah. The first question is, who's going to be lunch here? That's right, yeah. They're scared. Why are they scared? They're guilty. Yeah, they're guilty. Now, they're not guilty for what they're afraid they're going to be nailed for here. They're innocent of that, but they're just guilty people. And they just have this fear and this dread. And, they've, and, and this is all we've seen of these brothers is in, throughout this narrative. Is they're just afraid. They're, they're just living from one fear to another, right? And so now they, they think they've managed to deal with the spy issue. And interestingly enough, that never comes up again in the narrative. They, they think, okay, we've dealt with the spy issue. But now we've got this other thing of we're thieves or somebody thinks we're thieves and we've been framed. And, you know, and, and, and if you've been framed and you don't know who's framed you, that's pretty scary when you're back in an environment, right? So they're back in this environment and they're pretty sure somebody's framed them for some reason, but they have no idea who or why they've been framed. And so they're just scared. And what do they think is going to happen? Okay. And what conclusion do they reach? They're going to be slaves. Why do you think they reach that conclusion? Because they've got a history. What you fear comes upon you, you know. It's you know they they sold their brother into slavery, and it's that it's those words of Reuben coming back. Now comes the reckoning for his blood. You know. It's, it's, that, it's that mentality, that thought that we've gotten away with it for 22 years, but it was inevitable. Eventually, we were going to have to pay. 
and now we're going to end up being slaves. And and so so here they are. They're at the house. They're scared to go inside because they're afraid what's going to happen inside. They're going to be pressed into slavery. And so what do they do? They plead their case, right? They go to the house steward and uh, they're at the entrance uh, to the house and they plead their case and and they and they tell the house steward, look, we really are coming down to buy food. We really did the first time. We really are this time. You know, here's your money. You can have your money back. We didn't we don't know how it got there. And here's more money, you know, and they just and the house steward says what? But, you know, no, no problem, guys. No problem. Don't be afraid. You're God and the God of your fathers. The God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. <laughs> and then he brings Simeon out to them and he's, they're reunited with their brother and then they're brought into the house and they're given water and they wash their feet and the donkeys are fed and then the brothers, having now learned that they're there to eat a meal, uh, prepare the gift that they brought from home to present to Joseph and that's where our story today ends. Well... Uh, there are several things about this story that just kind of stick out to me. And one's just kind of a fun thing. The text doesn't give us any indication one way or another on this. And, and I think the reason it doesn't because it's really not important. But I had fun thinking about this, so I'm just going to tell you about it. Joseph's got a house steward, right? And the house steward serves as the Interpreter, right? So he's got a house steward that speaks fluent Hebrew. And and I, I just had fun thinking about this yesterday. I thought, where did Joseph get a house steward that could think, could think, could speak fluent Hebrew? I can't even do it with English. <laughs> where did he get a house steward that could speak fluent Hebrew? Okay. Okay. We don't have any idea, and it's total speculation. But you know, I just knowing Joseph, I just wondered if he didn't go to the slave market and find a slave who'd been sold out of Canaan into Egypt and bought him and elevated him to house steward. Yeah. Can't do anything with that. It's not in the text. We have no idea. Yeah, yeah, it was. It's exactly his entry level position, and uh, and it's just fun to think about. You know, uh, for what it's worth, you can do whatever you want with that. Just don't build any doctrine on it. Uh, but well, I was impressed with the house steward. I mean, he seems to be in on the plan. Yes. 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 God fearing. I mean, obviously he was training well. So yes. This is a reflection on Joseph's ability that he's a good leader. He gets good people around him. Yes. Yes. Uh, it, it, it is, uh, and it's kind of jumping ahead in the story here a little bit, but since you brought it up, we'll go ahead and, and talk about it. it. It really is, I think, significant that the house steward says, your God, the God of your father's, has put this treasure in your sack. 
Now, now you know the house steward did it at Joseph's direction. But he doesn't attribute it to himself. And he doesn't attribute it to Joseph. In other words, he recognizes the house steward is perceptive enough to know that what is happening, that Joseph's actions here are actually the hand of God in the life of Joseph's brothers. And, and Joseph's house steward is perceptive enough to see that. And that tells us two things. It tells us something about the house steward. And it tells us something about Joseph. That Joseph's character was such that his house steward could see that when Joseph acted, he was acting on God's behalf. So he really is, he really is an outstanding character. And, and, and quite a, uh, but that's getting ahead of the story. Okay. So, so the boys, or the boys, the men are brought to the house uh, according to, to Joseph's plan. And, 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 and there's, a, there's, a, there's kind of a motif, not a motive, but a motif in this whole narrative. And we've, we've, it's just kind of there and we deal with it all the time. But I, I just want to point it out to you because I think it's really illustrative of, of, of our own relationship with God. And this motif that kind of runs through, it's, it's a key motif throughout the whole narrative is this motive of knowledge. Who's got it and who doesn't, right? Okay. Through this whole narrative, you've got this motive of, of Joseph with his knowledge and the brothers without the knowledge. Okay. Now, as with every illustration, this you know, it breaks down at some point. But generally speaking, what makes this story work and what makes the whole scenario work is that Joseph knows a lot that his brothers don't know, right? And Joseph operates constantly utilizing the knowledge that he has of who he is and what's going on and, and, and his relationship with these guys and they don't know he has this relation. He has all this knowledge and they're completely oblivious to this. They have no knowledge of this, okay? He, this is just this strange Egyptian weirdo tyrant guy, whatever, you know, and they don't know any of this stuff. Okay. And so that puts them apparently in, in at tremendous disadvantage. And Joseph is using this knowledge to his advantage. So he is able to construct the situation and, and, and do things and, and direct things so as to get his brothers from point A to point B, not just geographically, but also just in their character. So Joseph is using this knowledge. And, and as I think about that, that knowledge, lack of knowledge motive that you see throughout the whole, throughout the whole narrative, it's, I think it's illustrative to us of, of where we are in our relationship with God. Uh, you know, God, this is going to seem like a real divergence here for a minute, but hang on. When God and we talked about this clear back in Genesis one, Genesis two, when we started our study, when God created us, He created us as material beings, right? In the perfect world, at the very beginning, we were material. Now, you and I weren't. I mean, we're okay. We were material beings. He created us in a material uh, material beings in a material universe. And he did that because that's the way he wanted us. We're not material people because of the fall. 
We are material people because that's the way God wanted us. And He put us in a material, real, physical world because that's where He wanted us to live. And when all is said and done and after the consummation of all things, you and I are still going to be material, hands and flesh, physical people. They're going to be changed, but that's what we're going to have. And we're going to be living not in some... We're not going to be disembodied spirits floating around on some... Uh, you know, some mystical heaven somewhere, we're going to be living on a real earth, a new heavens and a new earth, a real physical earth as physical beings. Why? Because that's how God created us. That's how He intends us to be. Okay? Well, and we talked about this as well. When God created us, when He created the material world, when He created matter, and space, he also created what? Time. Right? We don't tend to think in those terms. We don't, you know, time is so ethereal to us, it's hard for us to realize it's actually part of the material creation. Outside of material creation, time does not exist. That's why Jesus says before Abraham was, I am. Because God exists outside, in one sense outside of time. Now, he comes into time. He enters times even as he entered space. But God lives, I say, outside of time or independent of time. But you and I live as, as, as material creatures within the limits of time. And we always will, as near as I can understand. I don't, I don't know what, how eternity is going to all work out, but that's... I just understand time to be part of the material creation, so I assume there's always going to, that's always going to be a factor that we're going to deal with. And what that means, <clears throat> because we live in time and God doesn't, it means God has a lot of knowledge we don't have. <clears throat> and when you think about living in time, it can get really scary because the implications of living as constrained by time as you and I are means that none of us sitting here or standing here in this room today have the slightest notion of what's going to happen a split second from now. We're always living on the precipice of the unknown. Aren't we? I never know. And many are the times, every day, when things happen to us, totally unexpected, because we have no clue. It's not that we don't have a clue what's going to happen an hour from now. We don't have a clue what's going to happen a split second from now. That's just the nature of being what we are. But God's not like that. God sees the beginning from the end. He, you know, it's all just, it's all just now to Him, if I can use that term. And so He knows it all and He sees it all. And it's all understood to Him. And so, if, if we can, for a moment, let's just think of Joseph and his brothers as an illustration of, of the dynamic of our relationship with God. That we, we're like Joseph's brothers. We're clueless. <laughs> we really don't understand the whole picture. But 
But Joseph is kind of an illustration for us of God. He understands the whole picture. Now, of course, Joseph, really, he's human, so he doesn't understand the whole picture. And there are things in the story Joseph doesn't know, which is why he's doing some of the things he's doing, to find out some of the things he doesn't know. But, but Joseph can be for us an illustration or a picture of God who really sees the whole picture. And what we see Joseph doing is he is using his knowledge to his advantage to, to get his brothers where he wants them to be. And he's using, so he's using his knowledge, but he's also using his brother's lack of knowledge to get his brothers where he wants them to be. And I'm lying in bed the other night and I'm thinking about a particular thing in my life, situation in my life, and I just, I don't have the answers I want. And I can't see the future. And, I, and if I could see the future, I think, if I could just see the future, I'd know how to make the decisions I need to make in this area of my life. And I'm lying there in bed. And God reminds me of this passage. And He reminds me how He is in the place of Joseph. That he sees the whole picture. Now, if Joseph's brothers had known the whole picture, it's scary to think how they would have messed this whole story up. But they didn't know. So it's not just Joseph's knowledge that works to the advantage of the brothers, but it's the brothers' lack of knowledge that works to their advantage. Because it's their lack of knowledge with Joseph's knowledge that makes it possible for these brothers to be moved into a position of reconciliation. And that's just the way it is with God. God's knowledge and my lack of knowledge makes it possible for God to move me from where I am to where I need to be. Okay, Rick, so you're saying our lack of knowledge is a good thing. Yes. Okay. I'm saying our lack of knowledge is a good thing, and one of the evidences for that is because we were created with a lack of knowledge. There was a lack of knowledge in the garden. And in fact, it was the desire for more knowledge than was good for them that caused the fall. <laughs> yes, Gary. Yeah, yeah. And it's the glory of kings to search it out. So nothing wrong with searching and discovering and things like that, as long as it's restrained, not a, not like they did in the garden. But but it is the glory of God to conceal the matter, and it's and it's to our everlasting joy and pleasure that He does so. Well, and so the brothers come in their ignorance and, and so the brothers act as, you, as we act when we don't have full understanding. They act scared and they're always trying to, you know, work the situation around. So, you know, so that, you know they're, they're acting like we act when we don't know. Okay. And so they come to the house and they, and they realize we're being brought into the house and they are absolutely scared. Okay. And they make a comment. They say, they say he's, he's doing this to take us as slaves with our donkeys. Now, is there anything about that statement that kind of strikes you as weird? What? The donkey. The donkey. What is this? It's, not, it's almost comical. 
Here are guys that are just about ready to be, they think, pressed into slavery, and they're worried about their donkeys? I mean, these donkeys don't care whether they're slaves in Canaan or Egypt. In fact, they probably at this point would prefer Egypt. There's more food there, you know. And so, you know, when you when you run across little phrases like that in Scripture, sometimes it's really easy to go on and just. But the Holy Spirit must put those there for a reason. Why did the brothers say that? It's absurd. Unless it's saying something about them. Unless it's telling us something about the depth of their fear at this moment. I think they'd be well, yeah, I think it'd be more fearful for the future of the families by them being presence. I mean, the loss of the donkey is infinitesimally smaller than the loss of the breadwinner. Maybe they, you know, that kind of stuck out to me too. Then on down there, he talked about giving fodder to the donkeys. And you wonder if when they came in and the guy, they saw they weren't in trouble, the guy, well, what about our donkeys? I don't know if the steward just brought that up, but they were saying, but our donkeys, you know, but our donkeys are out here hungry. I don't know, but it's almost like they're, they're thinking of Joseph in the material sense, that he's going to take us as slaves and all the stuff we've got. He's going to take the possessions. Well, yeah. But again, you know, if, if I was on the threshold of being a slave, I don't think I'm going to be worried about somebody taking my car. You know, I, I just don't think that's going to bug. I mean, it, yeah, it'd be, it'd, be, it'd be a factor. The family's dependent on the car. Yeah, but the family's, not, the family's more dependent on me than they are the well, car. I mean, if you connect the two, like if somebody was... If somebody was trying to steal my car, I mean, I would be worried more for my life, but the motive would be the car. I mean, the carjacker, and maybe they're thinking in the sense he's just trying to take us all we've got, um, and we're going to be slaves with the real motive to steal. Well, yeah, but to me, it just doesn't, psychologically, it just doesn't make sense. If I'm on the threshold of becoming a slave for the rest of my life, never seeing my wife or my kids again, I don't think I'd worry about that donkey. You know why they said that? You know why I think they said that? What is a donkey? He's just a beast of burden. More like a truck than a car. <laughs> More like a truck than a car. <laughs> He's a beast of burden. And that's about what they are to become. They're looking at those donkeys and they're thinking, that's what I'm going to be. If I walk through that door, I'm going to become... With that donkey, I'm going to become a slave. And they are filled with fear that what they did to Joseph is about to happen to them. That they are to become nothing more than somebody's brutal beast of burden for the rest of their lives. And will be no more, have no more significance or meaning to anybody around them than that donkey has to them. And so these guys are scared to death to enter that house. So what do they do? They start talking. But notice what it says. It talks about the geography of where they talk. 
if the phrase with their donkeys caught your attention, how about the phrase at the entrance of the house? I go, why is that there? Why is it significant to us to recognize that the brothers, when they needed to talk to the house steward, had to come near to him and he was where? At the entrance to the house. And so here are these brothers who are filled with fear that they are about to, their whole life as they know it is about to come to an end and they are to become just mere beasts of burden in Egypt. And it will happen if they enter that house. And so to plead their case, they have to come right up to the threshold. They have to come right up to the threshold and they say to the steward, listen, you know, we really did come the first time to buy food and we came this time to buy food and we don't know who put that money in our sack. And, you know, and these guys are desperate. They are scared to death. And just a few feet away from them is the thing they dread the most. Now, of course, it really isn't. We know it's not. But in their mind, it is. They are standing at the portal of their greatest dread. And they are pleading like crazy for their lives. And what's the next word they hear? Shalom. What can we say about that? Here are men whose lives are in peril. Men who have lived with guilt and fear for 22 years, if not longer than that. Men who have Certainly for the last 22 years and maybe never in their lives have they known true peace. And here they are standing on the very threshold of retribution for all they have done. And the words they hear are peace. Do not be afraid. Your God the God of your Father has placed treasure in your sack. I had your money. Is that not a picture to us of salvation? Is that not a... I mean, there we were, folks. We're, we're sinners and we're racked with guilt and, and at every point we turn, God has a charge against us. And we are standing at the very portal of God's judgment on our lives. And what do we hear? Shalom. Do not be afraid. Is that not grace? It's paid in full. It's paid in full. Is that not grace? This is such a glorious picture to me. Here are these guys. They've, peace. They've known no peace. They've had no peace. But their brother Joseph is extending grace to them. He's extending forgiveness to them. And so here are these brothers whose lives are just 
paralyzed with fear and grief and, and, and guilt and, and the words that they hear coming from this house steward, this Egyptian for all they know, I don't know what he was, is shalom in their own native tongue. God be with you. God, your God is with you. Your God has done this. And then what does he say? He says, your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks. Ever since they left Egypt, how have they viewed that money in their sacks? As an act of treachery. Somebody has betrayed them. Somebody's framing them. That money in their sack was an object of treachery. And now they discover that in fact it was a treasure from God. How many times in our lives are the, are the, do we look at the things in our lives and, and, we, and, and, and because of our limited understanding or because of our own guilt or our own sin, we look at things and the things we look at, they're so ugly and they're so dark and they're so sinister and they're so threatening. And then somehow, some way, by the grace of God, eventually He moves us along and poof, we discover, oh, it was not that at all. But it was a treasure from God. Some of the darkest things in my life and some of the darkest things in your life are in fact a treasure that's given to you by your God. And someday, if not now, someday you will see and understand that and it will give you peace. And so their brother is brought back out to them. Simeon's brought back out to them and they are reunited and they enter the house and prepare for the meal. And I just... Just in closing, I just meditate upon what's going on in these guys' minds. What's going on in Benjamin's mind? <laughs> Man, this guy was in over his head. <laughs> Man, he was in over his head. He had no clue. He didn't know what these brothers were about. He didn't know what Joseph was about. He's just kind of along for the ride. And, and, and he, you know, he's probably just, you know. But if you think he's baffled. Can you imagine those brothers, how baffled they are? Here we come, we're expecting the worst and we're getting the best. That's what I keep finding. Every time I encounter God, as I keep expecting the worst and finding the best, I keep thinking he's got a grudge against me. He's got, you know, he's, you know, this, he, I failed him here and I failed him here, and he's not happy with me here. And, he's, and I and I come to him and I think I'm going to get a lecture or get a scolding or get a whipping or get a whatever. And what do I get? Shalom and treasure in my sack. I'm not just that fellowship. They're scared to death. I want to have dinner. I want to have dinner with you guys. Yeah.
Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll pick up the story next week. It gets heavier yet, folks. Okay.